Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Each person's journey is unique. Our goal is to connect survivors to resources along the way on their path to healing. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. We are here to help survivors get access to justice. Join us on this journey. Here is Support for Survivors. Welcome to Support for Survivors. This is your host, Shauna C. Terrell. Today, a special young woman, Shauna, is with us. Shauna is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. She was sexually, physically, and mentally abused by her father from ages 11 to 14. For the first time ever, Shauna is here today to tell her story. Welcome, Shauna. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course. And I know this is an incredibly difficult topic to talk about, and we recognize that. And we're very, very grateful that you're here to tell your story, to help others who've been going through or are now going through what you've been through. I think that it really helps other people. And so we're extremely grateful that you're taking the time to do it. And I know it's hard. Thank you. So um, we'll start talking about like a little bit of background now. Your your parents got divorced when you were 11, right? Yeah. So I, 10 10 to 11. Yeah. Okay. And like before that, your dad wasn't like super involved in your life, right? No, I actually, when I think of my father as a kid, with the exception of major holidays, uh, he was pretty much just glued to the corner of our trailer in a robe with a cup of coffee all day on his computer from sun up to sun past sundown. I'd go to bed. He'd still be on his computer. And is it fair to say that at that point in time, your mom and dad had kind of a fairly volatile relationship? Absolutely. Yes. Um, I mean, early, early childhood memories. I remember them fighting and screaming and I I was happy when they announced they were getting divorced. So Mm -hmm. it was very, very violent. And then I read in um, some of the notes that we had together before this, that when you can remember the moment, actually, when your dad was leaving the family and that he was super upset and you were really surprised that you thought, I didn't even know that he cared about us. Yeah. So I remember playing in the yard and he loaded down his vehicle and he just kind of stood next to his car and watched us play in the yard. And he looked like he was crying. And yeah, I was like, that's weird. (laughs) But up until that point, now you just have one brother, right? Yes. One older brother. Okay. And up until that point, he hadn't abused you. Is that right? Like physically or sexually or? Correct. No. However, I will, I do think it's important to say that very early memories I have looking back, he definitely had some sort of addiction or problem. Uh, very early on, I remember, you know, as a toddler going into my parents' bedroom and getting into the closet and he had like stacks and stacks and stacks of pornographic magazines or like I would go to play the VHS, <laughs> VHS, but VHS's <laughs> videos and uh, play my Disney movie that I thought would still be in there. And I would press play and a, a porn would start showing. And I remember my mother getting so angry whenever that would happen with him. Yeah, that's not good. There's tons of studies even going now about kids exposure to porn at an early age and how, how much easier it is now, obviously, because of the internet and things and the damage that that wreaks. And you don't even know when you're a kid like that, that it does anything to you, but it does, you know, do something. Absolutely. Yeah. But then, so shortly after he moved out of the family home and into an apartment, the grooming started pretty shortly thereafter, right? Super quick. Yeah. 
And so he manipulated your mom into giving him full custody. So you and your brother went to live with him full time, right? Correct. And then, um, so he like completely isolated you and alienated you from your mom, right? Cause he made you think that she didn't want anything to do with you. Yeah. So <clears throat> my, um, and my mother and my brother both have amazing stories with this too. And out of respect for them, I'm, I'm going to try to leave them out of, out of it as much as possible. There will be some things that I think that they are relevant to my story mm-hmm. to tell, but my mom went through some serious demons herself with my father and, and my brother. And he totally played on that and got us, like you said, to go live with him. And she would call every day, uh, is what she tells me now. And I believe her, mm-hmm. uh, she would call every day and she would reach out and he would tell us, or at least he would tell me, Oh, your mother hasn't called for days or she doesn't want anything to do with you. Your mother is living her own life. And I'm sure that that hurt. And then like you're relying even more on him. It's pretty classic for abusers to do that sort of thing. And then getting into some of the specific grooming behaviors, what kind of stuff was he doing to groom you at that point in time when you're 11 or so? So he really started becoming very complimentary and he bought a fancy camera um, and he started taking pictures of me just, you know, innocent seemingly. And he would tell me how beautiful I was and, and things like that. And he would do this every day. And then he would start showing me pictures of other little girls with their fathers and the pictures started to become more and more inappropriate. Um, but he would really work to normalize this and I trusted him, you know, he's my father and I remember feeling weird, but I thought maybe I just didn't know better. And he talked about, he, I mean, he played my mom against me. Like we haven't been close before this because your mom wouldn't allow it, but this is really what a father daughter relationship should look like. And then it kind of started to lead over time. You know, he'd say, oh, why don't you take off your shirt? You know, and so I'd just be in my bra. And I, I remember thinking like, this is weird, but I didn't want to disappoint him. And so it just kept evolving. And then, then he'd continue to do that and then help me pose. Or he would tell me to make a sexy face or a serious face. And then he would be like, oh my goodness, you're going to be a model one day. And just, you know, very manipulative. They are master manipulators. It's like they have it down to an art. Mm-hmm. And, um, they're very, very good at it. And it, that's exactly, it's so textbook what they do. They start with something innocent and then they just inch their way along until one day it's completely over here or it never was before. And you kind of wonder how you got there, but you're also a child and this is your father and you're just doing what he's telling you to do and they're normalizing it. So. Yeah. So I actually have a pretty. I don't know. It just stuck with me, but I remember the moment in my mind where it it definitely went too far past the point of no return for me, where I felt really stuck in it would have been during just the grooming period. Honestly, the first time he got me to take clothes off, maybe I still had some clothes on, but I, I still remember sitting in my sixth grade class and not even hearing what the teacher was talking about because I was just sitting there in my own head. Like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that this isn't okay, but I'm disgusting. And then he had me at that point. He, did he gaslight you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I remember sometimes even trying to, I would get in arguments with him. I've always been, some people would probably describe me as sassy today. And I've always had that fire inside of me 
Um, and, and it would come out sometimes with him, but he would definitely alter my perceptions. He would absolutely make me second guess what I thought about everything. At one point, I remember sitting in his office and telling him I was going to tell on him and that I knew that my mom loved me and I didn't believe him. And then by the time I walked out of there, I was right back into thinking everyone would hate me and I'm disgusting and right back into his trap. Mm-hmm. And this whole time while he's grooming you and it's, you know, escalating and getting um, progressively worse, he's grooming everybody around you too, like the community. Everybody thought he was just like this really great guy, pillar of the community type of person, right? Yeah. So he, uh, he was absolutely like a big player in our town, at least in, in my eyes. Uh, he was, he'd walk around. He was so outgoing. Everybody adored him. You're from a small town, right? Yes. I'm from a small town. And he was, uh, and he was a soccer coach at one point during the abuse, he actually pulled me out of public school and placed me in parochial school into a Catholic school. And then he was becoming Catholic and becoming this devout, you know, churchgoer, which I did not, I was not raised, um, in a church whatsoever or anything. So this was really out of the blue. I really think he was doing things like that to control me even more so, but anyway, yeah, he, uh, got, he was a soccer coach for junior high schoolers for high schoolers. I even had a few people that he used to coach reach out to me recently as they've seen me kind of breaking my silence to say like, they have moments now looking back that really bother them with him, but he also taught college classes. He was incredibly smart with computer programming. Um, so he was really well known and, and people loved him. Older women would tell me all the time how hot he was, which would make me sick. Cause th- that just was even more evidence that it's not like he couldn't get this elsewhere. And I also like to mention, he had a girlfriend the entire time, which was my babysitter as a kid that he took under his wing when she was a teenager. I was going to say, how old was she when he first came into contact with her? Yeah, I think she was a teenager and I knew her as my babysitter. And then they were together. She had no idea supposedly. And uh, I, I mean, I don't know. And yeah, he had a girlfriend and he had lots of women that were interested in him and he still chose to do what he did. Right. It's not really about that was what we've learned, you know, as time goes on and we see more of this stuff in terms of the grooming, he even would like send you flowers to school, right. On holidays. And then yes. get you and be like, Oh, it's just a special daddy daughter day and make everybody in the school office think, Oh my gosh, what a great dad. Look how good he is to her. That's how you want every daughter to grow up with the father. Yes. Yeah. So Valentine's day, I would always get um, a special gift from him and uh, like a dozen roses sent to the office and yeah, he would come pull me out of school and I would know why he was pulling me out of school. And what, and while everybody else is like, you know, gushing over what a great dad he was, I was sick and wanted to vomit because school is my safe place, you know, like with COVID and everything happening and then the school shutting down, I think of my little self, I think of what are the kids like me dealing with? Because that was my safe space (laughs) was school. And, and he would come pull me out of my safe space and drag me into that hell. That's a really, Um, which coincidentally he gets out on Valentine's day. So he did all these things special on Valentine's day and would groom me and he gets out on Valentine's day. So needless to say, I don't love that holiday, but next year too, right? Yes. Next year, Valentine's day, he will be released. It's kind of some sort of sick cosmic 
coincidence mm-hmm. that is awful. I'm sorry. So as the, and we'll talk a little bit more about the acts in a second, but like as the acts kind of escalated, so did his behavior towards you in terms of kind of going from grooming now into like downright threats and physical abuse, right? Yes. So I think once he knew that he had me trapped, he, yeah, it was no longer asking or suggesting or like talking me into it. It was, you're doing this. This is what you're doing. And I learned pretty quickly that I couldn't really say no. Mm -hmm. So it started first with the photos getting worse, right? Like going just from really weird to beyond that. Yeah. So one day um, I came home and he had bought a nicer camera and a tripod set just for my bedroom um, that I was supposed to hide when not in use. And he started buying like outfits for me to wear and started giving me like poses that I had to do. And so there were 20 pictures in a set and he would have me do three sets of pictures. So 60 pictures every other night. And this started when I was, uh, the summer before my sixth grade year, or maybe just having started sixth grade year this is the timeline. And I did this up to the time I told on him my eighth grade year. So I did the math <laughs> when thinking about this podcast and it more or less, I took 21,900 photos for him. That's awful. And you don't have any idea what he did with them. No. So At some point in my seventh grade year, uh, somehow a boy from my school got his hands on a picture, nothing too racy, but mm, provocative. And um, they made copies of it. And I remember going to the pool and my uh, little boyfriend that I was supposed to have then broke up with me because he found out about it. And, and um, people's parents told them that I, they couldn't hang out with me anymore because I was, you know, a bad influence because I was doing stuff like that. And I, I would go to the dance and get called a porn star or whatever. And, um, I covered up, I, I, I became a very good liar and very deceitful during these years, um, for self-preservation purposes. And yeah, I would say, Oh no, that's not me. It's Photoshop or I don't know, whatever. Somehow by the grace of God, that rumor kind of went to the wayside. I, I held my head high and just pushed through it. But my point in saying all that is that he was doing something with those pictures, those pictures, you know, honestly, my belief in that, and this isn't anything but my own gut and my own intuition is that there's probably somebody else in that town just as sick as him. And there was a ring and they were sharing pictures and somehow somebody's son got a hold of it is my belief, but who, I don't know how they got it. You're probably right. Um, so you're like 12 to 13 years old. This picture got out. Other kids saw it. Clearly other parents knew about it at least if maybe even saw it. And instead of, I don't know, going to the police, Mm -hmm. you can't hang out with her. She's a bad influence. Correct. Yeah. It's unreal. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, that isn't, you know, common. That just happened there. And no, that is very common. That's the kind of crap that happens. And it's, that's child abuse. Like, absolutely. I just had a conversation with somebody recently that was upset because somebody found, um, their family found a video of their 13 year old niece giving oral sex to an 
older to an adult and they were mad at the niece. And I, I like educated them that day. They got an education, but they walked away like enlightened and thankful that they talked to me about it. And they were, they went about it completely different than they were planning to, you know, but people don't, I don't know why they don't jump to the worst. Mm -mm, It's weird. It's crazy. We talk about this all the time on here that we think that we are finally experiencing a cultural shift and things like the Me Too movement and stuff like that is pushing us in the right direction. But clearly it's evidenced by what you just said, like this just happened where, Mm -hmm. you know, this person told you that we got a long way to go because for whatever reason, the knee jerk reaction is always to blame the victim. And why is she like acting slutty or, you know, in other circumstances, was she drinking things like that? And it's like, what in the world are you people talking about? Like, there's a problem here. If this is happening with a child that age period. Yeah. And I think that that's probably been my biggest struggle in breaking the silence about it is because I mean, movies and things don't help this, but mostly it's not like he was holding me down and blackening my eye and you know, forcing me physically. I mean, there was that in moments and in time that scared me to continue to be manipulated. But when people see like, she's doing it on her own, like a video or a picture and she looks like she's enjoying it. That's part of the abuse. Like, yeah, if you're going to be abused and act like you don't like it, they're going to be awful to you. Like that's, it's part of the abuse. And so I think that I really struggle with that because people think like, oh, she must, she was old enough to know, to tell, or she, you know, all those things. It's such a, a misunderstanding that is pervasive. And it's the same way in like domestic violence. Like, why didn't she leave? You don't understand. No. All of this. And they're like, I would do X, Y, and Z. You don't know that. No one knows that. And so it's, you know, that's why we do things like this today. Right. Cause we're trying to exactly. educate people. Okay. So Moving on from there, the photos got, you know, worse and worse. And then what else happened? Did it escalate in other ways? Yeah. So I would say like the, the bridge that bridged the gap would be, um, one night he came into my room and and let me just say this, that like the more pictures I took or the better that the pictures were or whatever he would gift me. So I remember I would have girlfriends come over and be jealous of all my clothes and my bedroom. It looked like, I don't know if you remember the store dry ice, but that was super cool when I was younger Mm -hmm. and my bedroom looked like that store. And that was actually because that's what he would do to try to reinforce me doing those things. So he would gift me a lot. And, um, so one night he came in and he turned on all the cool special lights, all like the neat lights in my room and made it real dark in there. And he actually sat on my blow up couch and he turned on music and he told me to dance for him and I didn't want to do it. And he said, you're going to dance for me. You're going to do it. And I awkwardly did. And I can still remember, I can remember him masturbating. Like I could hear it. I couldn't see it, but I could hear it. And that is the night I guess he lost control of himself. And that is the first time that he uh, sexually assaulted me. Um, I mean, against my will, all my nose, there was nobody else home. And that was, that was it. Like, and at that point, I think that I died inside a little bit for a while. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, How old were you at that point? I was in seventh grade. 
it was the summer before my seventh grade year going into seventh grade. So that would put me at 12, 13. And then I'm guessing that it just got worse from there. Yes. At that point, uh, he, I, I guess something clicked in his brain and he, I truly believe at that moment he was planning to have sex with me. Um, and he started to try to groom me over the next year for that. So he started doing everything else. Um, he forced me to give him oral sex. He would force oral sex on me, all the pictures. He, sorry, just getting my bearings. We would have like get togethers. Like he would allow me to have, uh, parties like a Halloween party. And he would actually pull me out of the party, uh, around the corner of the house and make me perform oral sex with my friends right around the corner or other adults right around the corner. Um, he started to buy very sexual outfits for me to wear for him. He started to buy sex toys and told me to practice, um, with them. And I, knew in that moment what he was going to do to me or what he was planning to do to me. Uh, and he, uh, got, if I said no, um, he did get physical with me. Not, I mean, outside of the sexual stuff, he got physical with me and would spank me or he would not let me go to school and make me write letter or write sentences over and over and over and over again. One time he made me do that and threatened to literally beat me <laughs> if I didn't get enough sentences. I couldn't tell you how many sentences I had to write, but I do know I was frantically writing them and terrified I wasn't going to get it done on time, all because I sat next to a boy in church. And so, yeah, he became, I mean, he was already monster like prior to that. I think we can agree, but he became a monster. And if I didn't do something, if, if, if I didn't do it fully out, even, um, he would actually pack up clothes of mine, or he would start taking stuff out of my bedroom and put them in his trunk and take them away from me. Take whatever it was that your preteen self valued more than anything in the world, which is at that age is like having, you know, nice, pretty things and fitting in with your friends and having the right clothes and that cool room. That's, he'd be the first thing he would grab out. Right. Yeah. So, and then, and if you think about it, I said that school is my safe space, right? It's my safe place. So then he takes all of my clothes and kids are freaking mean. So I had had one pair of jeans I was allowed to wear and I had to use a pair of yarn to keep them shut because the button wasn't even on there. And so I would wear the same pair of jeans every single day to school and get made fun of. So now my safe space was no longer safe. Took that away too. Mm -hmm. When you said that he made you write stuff, I think, didn't you say that one of the things he made you write was over and over I will not be a slut and I will be a better daughter in person. Yes. Because you weren't complying with his abuse. Correct. And, you know, I have to ask in my experience when an abuser has is into pictures and child porn. Um, actually I don't like to say it like that because that's I understand. a way to put it, but, um, they often fixate on videos of themselves doing the acts. Did he do any of that kind of thing? Yes. He actually would still continue to show me, and this breaks my heart now because it's obviously so many other little girls and boys go through this, but he would show me other videos of little girls performing sexual acts on their fathers 
or men, adult men that he would stay where their fathers. Mm-hmm. And then there you go. So he starts showing me those videos, trying to normalize it. That was the first time actually one was a video of a little girl giving a grown man oral sex. And that was the first time he forced me to do that. And then he laughed at me when, when it was done. I'll never forget that. Um, but he started to videotape that. And actually, I don't know if my mother had to sit in court for that or not, but they actually found some of the videos of that. So we'll get to this later, kind of jumping around, but they found videos of me performing oral sex on him. And I really, I don't know if my mother had to watch that, but um, yeah. So he started videoing sexual acts. Let's let, let's go. So this, that started the actual physical sexual assault started <clears throat> summer before seventh grade. And then it went on for like over a year before you did tell, right? Correct. And then let's, so let's talk about that, about when you did tell, like what prompted it and what happened from there. Cause I think things moved pretty quickly once you told. Yeah. So I, it was November 11th of 2000 and I left that morning, not knowing I was going to tell. And I had speech competitions at the junior high. So I leave and I do my speech competitions. He doesn't come watch them or anything. And then I I got like a first and I remember being excited. So my friends that did come support me when we wanted to celebrate and I wanted to go over to my best friend's house and, and play and hang out. And Mm -hmm. so I called to ask him permission. And this probably would have been about 11 or 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And he said, yeah, but you need to be home by three and you know why. And I don't know, you can call it a higher power. You can call it my gut intuition. I, I don't know, but I knew he was going to force sex on me that day. I knew he was going to rape me and I couldn't go home. So I had two other girlfriends and we go to her house and I sat there and I was sick. And I thought, how do I get out of going home? I can't go home. Do I run away? Like I'm going through all the options and I don't know what came over me because I'm there with two girls, my age, not going through what I'm going through. And to my knowledge, and I, um, I said, you guys, I have to tell you something about my dad. And one of them who was more of a crude friend, kind of funny, but crude, she said something. I don't remember exactly anymore, but she said something along the lines of what is he, is he touching you? Or it was something like that. Is he in jest? Yes. It was total in jest. And I don't know what provoked that to come out of her mouth again, kind of an odd thing. And I just started sobbing and I'll never forget their faces their eyes were huge and they both ran over to me and hugged me. And, um, my one friend, the one that joked about it was like, what do I do? What do I do? And I said, I just said, go get your mom, go get your mom. And so she did. And her mom, I still talk to her sometimes. Uh, but she's my, I call her an angel. And I remember she looked at me and said, I mean, I think she was going to help me no matter what, but she, in that moment was so awesome with victims. She looked at me and said, can I have your permission to help you? Wow. And that gave me power. Right. And so I said, I sobbed and I said, yes. And at first the police were going to come to their house, but they knew that my father would come looking for me again. Remember these people know him, everyone knows him. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So they said, bring her to the police station. And at that point she did. And as she instructed the other girls not to answer the door for anybody. She sounds like a very wise woman to, I mean, this is 21, almost 21 years ago. And she knew enough to empower you in that moment. I think that's pretty beautiful. So you went to the police station and kind of just let it all out. Right. Yeah. And, and I am terrified in this moment. Like I am terrified. I'm thinking like, something's going to go wrong. They're going to send me home. They're not going to believe me. They're going to send me home with him. And he is going to do horrible, horrible things to me. So did you have like a lot of competing emotions in that moment? Was there this sense of relief, but also like some dread and obviously you're scared, like just all these things like floating around. Absolutely. Yeah. I was all over the place. So, I mean, I think the woman that helped me in that moment, my friend's mom, I think she, that was huge. Her support was huge. It made me feel like I was possibly going to be safe. Like she wasn't going to let me like let anything happen to me. And remember too, at this point, I still haven't talked to my mom for a long time. Right. So my mother is in that town somewhere, but I think she's going to think I'm disgusting. Right. And, and my, my big brother is clueless, mm-hmm. but he's always struggled with that, that he didn't know. And he was right down the hall. So, yeah. So I, I go in there and I remember sitting in this room going to the police station and they, it was a room off to the left and it had like reflective windows. So you couldn't see inside of them. And detective Grabo was his name. He, he came in and I, I remember him sitting down at the table. I remember my friend's mom still being in the room with me. And I think there was one or two other people, but honestly, it's a blur. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was amazing to me. So he sat down and he really was very gentle, I guess is the word I'll use. He didn't come in there blazing like sometimes uh, authority or police do wanting information. He was very gentle with his questioning. He kept telling me what a good job I was doing. And it made me feel the way he did it. It made me feel like I was giving them what they needed to protect me and the way he would word things. And he believed you. He believed me. Yes. How did um, that good. And the fact that they, the concerned looks on these adults' faces started to shatter some of my core beliefs in that paradigm that I had that I was a disgusting person and nobody would believe me and everybody would hate me. Other things your abuser told you. Exactly. At some point, this is always crazy to me. Apparently he came in. So remember I was supposed to be home by three o'clock. Well, I had been questioning, been been questioning for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I gave them, I told them where to find outfits. I told them about the pictures. I told them where to find the sex toys. Mm -hmm. I mean, I gave them everything I possibly could. And, uh, he came into the police station and I couldn't see him or anything. I didn't know at the time to report me as a missing person. Oh, wow. And they played it cool, like did what they do mm-hmm. um, and took down the information knowing that I was in that room. Wow. You know, so um, this is the Rantoul, Illinois Police Department, right? Yes. Rantoul Police Department. They're amazing. Kudos to them. Yeah. And so they actually at that point, and this is where it becomes a real blur for me. At that point, I think is when they decided they needed to move me because they believed me and they were doing everything they could to get a search warrant. Mm -hmm. You know, and they wanted to have all their 
they wanted to have all the gold, all the ducks in a row before they go do something. So they moved me to a different room, I think it was downstairs. And I actually remember hanging out with paramedics the rest <laughs> when they were done questioning me and they bought me McDonald's and I watched TV. At that point, I didn't really know what they were doing, but they contacted my mother and, um, and I didn't know this in this, uh, I talked to her last night and then, uh, we talked about this story actually. Um, and it always gets me, especially now that I'm a mother myself, but they went and knocked on her door and, uh, her boyfriend who he's passed away now, but he was like my, he was like a father to me, mm-hmm. but knocked on their door and, uh, again, small town. They're like, Hey, and she goes, no guys, what's up? Just tell me. And they're like, no, you need to come to the police station. And, and she's thinking like, Oh Jesus, like what, not, what's my ex up to like, not thinking anything horrible about the kids yet, you know? So she gets to the police station, she says, and, uh, they sit her down or maybe they're standing talking. I don't know. And they say, you know, there's been some accusations about your ex-husband about, about Kurt. And she said, listen, he is, he is an asshole. (laughs) He's not going to, he would never do that. Like he'll do a lot of things, but he wouldn't do that. Who, who the hell said this? And they said, well, your daughter. And she said at that point, she couldn't hear anything and that she dropped to her knees and she knew it was real at that moment. And, um, I went home with her that evening and I told her last night, I actually don't remember the first time seeing her. I don't remember the car ride home. I don't remember that reunion Mm -hmm. at all. It's, it's not there, but I do remember this. I remember sleeping in that bed for the first time, not afraid to go to sleep. And also I told her just last night, even how lucky I am that we didn't really have much of a relationship for those years. Mm -hmm. But when they said your daughter said it, she immediately believed me. So important. I mean, like it's the second time we've talked about it already. The police believed you, your mom believed you. I can't, what that does for victims is so very important. Yes. It's huge. So while you were down there, um, kind of hanging out with the EMTs, the police were moving quickly. Right. And they did get that warrant together. And because your dad didn't have any notice, they were able to go execute it. And they found all of that stuff that you said they would find. Right. Yeah. So I actually got the story a little bit messed up in the notes. So I talked, I'm so glad I talked to my mom again, I was a kid, you know, so I remember a little bit differently than how it really happened, but yes, essentially, but it was a little bit longer in my mind. It all happened like that night. So Mm -hmm. it didn't, it didn't. Yeah. They waited a day or two. She was even kind of messed up on the timeline, but they actually waited a day or two because she, she pulled an all nighter that night and so did her boyfriend because she, the boyfriend had, you know, he is a hunter. So she knew my father was home and she wanted to go handle business. And he watched her. <laughs> so, well, were they also like a little bit afraid he might show Cause he thinks you're missing, right? He thinks you like ran away yeah. or something. So I'm yeah. sure they're worried too that he's going to show up at your mom's house looking for you. Yeah. And so he actually got wind or he was smart enough that he loaded his car down with all these like possessions and parked it somewhere in Champaign. Mm-hmm. And then 
checked himself into uh, Mercy Hospital to the psych ward. Oh my God. So upon their level of manipulation. Yes. Yes. So I didn't know that actually until last night when I talked to my mom about, about this. Wow. And so he checks himself into the psych ward and they're like, yeah, you're, I mean, you're not right, but you're not, you don't need to be in here. So they release him and the police arrested him in the parking lot. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they'd already been to the house and gotten like all of the like sex toys and things yes. like that. He told him would be there. And apparently he had dumped some like those videos and stuff. So mm-hmm. good neighbors, right? Uh, dumped some videos in the, a dumpster, but the neighbors, nosy neighbors had seen all the police, small town, uh, all the police around. So they went and dug whatever he dumped in the dumpsters out and then turned it into police. And that's actually how they got the videos of the sexual acts. Wow. They also had to send off the computers because he tried, again, he's very smart and he uh, tried yeah. to wipe all those pictures off, but they sent the computers out to have that worked on so they could get their, all the, the pictures. Wow. Okay. So he gets charged obviously, and he ends up taking a guilty plea. Right. Yes. So how much, how many years it did, was it like an open plea where the judge kind of got to decide, or was it like a specific number of years that I'm not like, I couldn't speak too strongly on, but I do know the judge that he got had the reputation that is not the judge that any sex offender wanted. I do know that he had that reputation. I know that what he was sentenced with was a class X an aggravated criminal sexual assault as a felony mm-hmm. uh, for 25 years. So I'm pretty sure this judge gave him the, the max. And then he also had uh, a class one child pornography film um, mm-hmm. photo act. He got 15 years. And one thing that my family was upset about was that it was supposed to be not concurrent. And so oh. it became concurrent. So he was able to serve that 15 years inside of that 25 years. But yeah. because I, work in a prison, I have become very aware. And I tell my family of how lucky we are that he got 25 years because a lot of the ones I see do not get that. They get five, six probation. He got 25 years. And, and although, you know, they're upset, it wasn't more, I recognize how I'm going to use the word lucky for lack of a better word, but I, I recognize how lucky I am to have gotten that justice in our system today. Unfortunately, I definitely agree with you having prosecuted the cases for a long time. There are many things that go into that. And I always go back to that societal issue that we have, because at the end of the day, prosecutors do have to take that into consideration. Like what, what are the facts here? And I heard a prosecutor say this once and it was really effective to me. And it was like, in one hand, I have what I know happened. And in my other hand, I have what I think I can prove happened and they're not always the same. And so Mm -hmm. they have to take that into consideration and it's really freaking hard. There's a lot of balls in the air on that and things they have to take into thinking when they're trying to decide what to do. And I know that it's just, it's really difficult stuff. So I was reading and for people who don't know, when someone gets sentenced on a crime, they're allowed to write a letter to the court. Any victims are allowed to write a letter to the court. And then anybody who really just wants to 
support or not, you know, either the victim or the defendant can write a letter to the court. And so I read your statement and I thought it was really great, especially for a kid your age. I thought it was really profound and um, you did a great job. And then I read the letter that Kurt wrote to the court, which is like three pages long. And for the first two pages, it it's like, you know, I did a bad thing, but I'm not a bad person and kind of like feel sorry for me. And then he gets this part. <laughs> this honestly really made me mad. I needed to have Shauna live with her mom, but she didn't want this. I mm-hmm. wanted to tell her brother and mom of my problem, but she was very upset over that thought. So it's still your freaking fault. Like it's, still my fault. Uh, it's so textbook. It. <laughs> yeah. He does a really good job out of talking out of both sides of his mouth in that mm-hmm. letter. And just there's, there's literally no other word than manipulation in that, like his attempt to manipulate that judge. I'm so glad we had the judge that we had. And I remember actually uh, reading that victim impact statement and something that the judge did well that I want people to know because it stayed with me. It was time for me to read. First of all, let me back up. My father, I do have long hair today and I love my long hair. It took me a while to like my long hair again. My father would not let me cut my hair. So um, right before court, my mom and I were walking through the mall and we went into like a great clips and I had them cut my hair like to my chin and ears. So that way, when I walked in there, he could see my short hair. And that was like a power move for me, even though I hated it. It was so ugly, but I did not like it, but it was awesome to me for that moment. And so we're sitting in the back of the courtroom and my mom is sitting right next to me. And it was my time to read that victim impact statement. And I stood up And I started to walk to the front of the courtroom where I was going to read it. And the judge said, no, no, you can read it right from there if you want. And that was huge for me because I would, I didn't want to have to look at uh, my father in the face or because I only saw the back of him and he kept trying to turn around to like mouth the words, I'm sorry, but somebody told him to turn around and shut up, which was great. And then when he went to read his letter in his statement, my mom grabbed my hand and stood up and we walked out. So I actually never read that, what you're talking about until I was older and requested uh, mm-hmm. court documents. Cause I was kind of just looking into my life. <laughs> sure. I think that that is amazing of you and your mom that you were like showing him in a courtroom the best way you can that you're like, no man, you don't get to do this anymore. You have no power over us and see ya. Yep, exactly so empowering. So you went through the criminal justice system and you've talked already a little bit about what the judge did and the police did. Is there anything that anybody within the system, meaning like the judge, the prosecutor, the police that stands out in your mind that was really helpful other than what we've already talked about or anything that you really feel like somebody could have done better? Because I always, we're always trying to educate everybody and make sure that they have these things in mind when they're talking to victims and survivors. I mean, I think uh, my, I've always heard my mom say incredibly positive things about our attorney, Tom Kester was his name. And I'll I'll throw his name out there. I, I don't know if I could even pick him up from a lineup, but I know that he meant a lot to my mother and brother. And I don't think he like, I I don't think he charged them anything. Again, if very little, if so, and it's not like we came from a lot. And so he was super, super supportive and very helpful and wanted to get as much justice for us as possible. So if, people like you have this passion to be an attorney. Like that was, 
I mean, money on top of like dealing with just finding out your daughter has been sexually molested by your ex-husband. That's enough. Like, let's not tack on $10,000 lawyer fees or whatever, you know? So I don't know. That's a thing that really sticks out to me. And I know people have to make their money, but so I guess assistance in that kind of way is huge. And then also along with that one complaint, and I don't know that this was necessarily to him, but my mom said, cause I asked her that question and she said, honestly, everything was pretty good. People were super supportive of us and they surrounded themselves around us. But from the time he was arrested, he didn't get tried until April Yeah, the following year. And she had no clue. They had no clue what was going on in the meantime. So there's that. I think that they did get us some assistance with counseling services. I wasn't impressed then. And looking back, I'm definitely not impressed with the help that we got, but that know more about it. Yeah. So I have my master's in social work and I think that we're definitely on the right track, but still so much work to be done of trauma informed care for everybody. So Mm -hmm. lawyers for therapists and, and matching those children up with a trauma informed therapist. Do not just give them to anybody that has that a license or whatever. I think it's incredibly crucial to have that therapist be trauma informed care. Otherwise it's not going to be very effective in my opinion. It's a really great point. Some, a lot of people still don't even know what trauma informed care is, let alone finding the right person. That's what we, our whole team at Kona Malad is trained in trauma informed care. And that's definitely not common. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we talked about what the professionals can do. What about loved ones as someone they love is going through this, or they've been through this and they're looking back now and they're trying to figure out how best to support them. Do you have any advice for them? I think that being okay with the uncomfortable topic. Yes, it is uncomfortable to hear. It is uncomfortable to talk about, but I promise it's probably way more uncomfortable to go through it. And so just show up and care. There's not really like a right thing to say, but just show up, care, believe them. 86, the blaming, I (laughs) take away the blaming. And I think if you, if people just believe them and show up and care, that is the best thing you can do for somebody. Thank you. Oh, is there anything else that you want to share that you think that people need to know about sexual abuse of children? Yeah, there's a couple of things I think are important. First, if anybody is listening to this podcast that is currently going through sexual abuse or you have gone through sexual abuse and you haven't told anybody, or maybe you have told somebody and you're still dealing with it. You're not disgusting. You're not gross. You're not broken. And I promise that there is life after, after this, after abuse. And I don't have a perfect life. I am actually going through my second divorce. (laughs) So I obviously have my issues with probably that have manifested in its own way in my relationships. I think that, um, I think that I'm really, I have a low tolerance for, for certain things because of my abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I had no control as a child, but as a woman I do. And, and so I, I all about taking control and being in healthy relationships. That being said, I have a good life. I have a good job. I have a a master's degree. I have beautiful friendships and family and, uh, life is 
is there for you after. And, and the thing too, that I think it's important that people know is for loved ones to know. And for those that are survivors, we get through it. We grit through it. We think that we're good. And then I became a mother mm-hmm. and a whole nother world about my abuse opened up and wounds came back out and it's okay. This is a life long process and it's okay if you have to revisit it and it's healthy to revisit it. And I, I don't know. I just really wanted survivors to know that they are, they're actually warriors. And as far as everybody else, like I said, believe them. It's not your job to be an investigator. It's your job to love them and care and stop silencing victims. Stop silencing them. When I was going through it, I was silenced. And then when I got out of it, I was still silenced because you don't want people to know about that. What if these people find out what it makes people uncomfortable, right? I have heard that up to recently. I have heard that up to recently doing this podcast. People are like, well, I support you, but it's going to make people uncomfortable. Good. They need to be uncomfortable. Yes. They need to be uncomfortable. So when other people go through other trauma, I'm going to say this. There are some things that are traumatic for people. I don't know, maybe a crazy car accident. Mm -hmm. We want to hear about that. We're like, oh my God, that's amazing. You went through that. Right. Oh, what a story. What a comeback story that you are still here to tell and alive to tell us about your traumatic car accident. But when people like myself have this childhood or maybe later in life traumatic, they're like, oh, ooh, let's not talk about it. Yep. That's weird. That's uncomfortable. And that sucks. That yeah. sucks because I think that that story makes a lot of who I am. So anyway, wanted to say that. I think that's super powerful and super helpful. I think that is really great advice. Shauna, thank you for being here. Like honestly, from the bottom of my heart, I can't, I know how difficult it is for people to talk about and relive it. And you are truly a courageous, impressive woman. And I'm really humbled that you trusted us to get your story out there. And thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate you letting me tell the story. It means a lot to me. And I hope that people hear it. (laughs) I truly think that they will. As always, thank you to our listeners. Submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. And I'll see you next time.